0: Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Charlie Robbins is old school, and I say that with the deepest affection. If you want to find out what really happened when Node burst onto the scene, and managed to establish itself as a brand new software development platform. We take a deep dive into the whys and wherefores, essential listening if you're trying to establish your own proprietary or indeed open source platform today. And that was just the first topic. We cover a whole bunch of ground. All right, Charlie, let's talk. Charlie, welcome to the Fireside with Vox Gig podcast. It is great to have you on and to be talking again since I think well, pre-COVID times. Yeah, oh, definitely since before COVID. So I invited you on because you had a front row seat to the early days of Node. And how it took over the world and the setup of various foundations and all of that stuff. And what fascinates me from a developer relations perspective is uh, why... On Earth did nodejs manage somehow to take over the world I mean Ryan dial did an amazing it's talk. funny
1: now that I think about it in in terms of devrel or dev advocacy because my entry into node is a direct result of a complete and utter uh, lack of that failure of that on behalf of Microsoft um, back then I um Started my career at Microsoft. I worked on an, a very old, very dead piece of technology called Windows Presentation Foundation. Although for the Microsoft.net folks listening to this, it's probably not as old and dead as I'm saying it is. But this is you know 2005, 2006. And I drank the Kool-Aid hard. Um, I worked at Microsoft right out of school. I worked on these things called XBAPs, um, XAML-based applications that ran inside of uh, ActiveX in, in Internet Explorer. So really like web amplifying it already. Um, and then I went on to work um, after the financial crash. Paradoxically, I went into financial services, financial software consulting, because as uh, my old boss, who uh, is now actually the CEO and founder of Greenhouse, used to say, consultants thrive in a downturn. And so this technology that was very new that Microsoft was selling to everyone, WPF and Silverlight, I had you know, light years more experience than other people. So I, I was working with people, you know, 10, 12 years my senior, on very notable pieces of financial software that obviously I can't talk about sort of who's and what's, but you name a a large bank here in the U.S., and chances are it was a large front-end application for their trading desk. Um, And in doing so, we would find bugs and features um, for some of these things that were, let's call them source available, not open source. And I'd worked at Microsoft, mind you. So sort of the tipping point for me, and if you go look at my GitHub profile, it's probably one of the oldest repositories that's there. Um, it was adding support for an insertable uh, interface on, a, I'm sure, a very old, dead framework of theirs. I, think, I believe it's called Prism. And I got it all together, you know, all the code, all the tests, and submitted my you know, Mercurial-based uh, not even pull requests to CodePlex, only to be told that um, they only accept changes from Microsoft employees. And that was sort of the end for me. <laughs> I I'd wow. been, you know, I did it, I knew that it was right because I'd been a Microsoft employee and it's what they wanted. And sort of the like, you know, beyond the CLA, which is a topic that comes up a lot in foundations, of like, we just literally we don't even have a CLA we're just gonna say, if you don't work for us, we're done. And so I, I flipped my table out. Um, I was obviously polite about it, but I was like, okay, well, if that's where you want me to put it, then uh, I can tell you where to put something else, you know? Um, I was a uh, GitHub user 4,628 or something like that. And it, that was like the same week that all of this happened. Um, and my roommate at the time was, had been kind of the same as me, but always JavaScript. And I, you know, didn't really know JavaScript. I was like, yeah, I don't know, this prototype thing, that seems weird. And um, then I think probably the month later was Rise talk at JSConf in November um, 2009. And the, like, night and day of, like, community, like the idea of it, or like, people were just like, I'm doing this, that's cool, I'm doing this. I'm doing this other thing. And we, you know, just open, free discourse about it versus you know, the guarded um, walls of CodePlex that I'd experienced was really the reason I got into it. And from there, um, it solidified my thinking that I must've told this story to investors and you know, tons of people more times than I can count, but it was this thing that Microsoft was reporting would be like the next coming of uh, .NET was gonna die. And so therefore, Flash and Flex were going to die. And this was before we knew that the iPhone was going to kill Flash. Um, so this thing that everyone kind of like laughs off, called JavaScript, that's going to win, the front end. And when I had been doing all this work with these large banks, they loved the idea of one language. They loved the like C-sharp front end, they C-sharp would, back end. Yeah, they and would. And so yeah. here comes this like JavaScript backend that everyone thinks is a joke that's going to take over. That's going to be the largest programming platform on the planet. And this was 2009 that I was thinking this. Um, and by the time that we started the Node.js Foundation, I remember having this conversation with Michael Rogers, like, oh, we are the largest programming platform on the planet. We are. This is like 2015. Like, we are. We, it is. We have to just, like, find the numbers to prove that it is. But, like, we know that it is. And it was like, oh, I think it was NPM downloads compared to Maven downloads or something like that. But JavaScript had long been the number one language on GitHub.
0: But Charlie, was it just that basic structural reason that JavaScript is the language of the browser? Did that make it... Something's got to win. There's
1: there's a bit of a oligopoly to it of like, where is there a presentation stack? You know, why are we not all writing QT, right?
0: Um, and... But what it doesn't explain for me is, why was the community so strong? That has to be a huge part of it. You know, in the early 2010s, I have the same experience as you coming from Java, from this really strict clinical approach to, hey, do whatever you like. You know, let's be creative.
1: Yeah. I think it's the creativity part of it. Um, and this is what I try to bring into engineer organizations that I work with now in my client base. Uh, engineers are far more creative than people give them credit for. Um, I think oftentimes you could hear sort of software engineer and accountant and think that it's sort of the same same thing and they're not at all. Um, sorry for all the accountants out there. Maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying for you. Um, you maybe really do want to be a line tamer and Monty Python was right. Um, but uh, engineers are, are it's, it's a very creative thing to go do. And most people get convinced that they aren't creative because their ideas get squashed prematurely they don't have that time to be like well this is probably remember this term mad science right this is kind of crazy i don't know if it's gonna work but i'm gonna work on this for a couple of days and i'm gonna see if this is gonna work like i don't know a process monitor in pure javascript that's kind of a crazy idea but once you implement the right. C interface for detached child processes in, uh, you know, LibUV, it works. And, you know, it still has issues that like upstart Monit don't have, cause they're like baked into the operating system when they start. But once it's going, your operating system is good. And you put it in your upstart or Monit script, like it works. And, uh, I think if I was going to do it all over again, I don't know if I'd write forever. Uh, but I certainly learned a lot writing it and I'm a learned by doing kind of person. And I think that was the other part of it is that there were a lot of people in those early groups that were learned by doing. And that sort of like, uh, well, I don't know if that's gonna work and I only know if it's gonna work if I see it working. So I might as well just try and make it work. Like, should I rewrite this very complex CHTP header parser in JavaScript? I don't know. But why don't okay. I do it four times and I'll see if it's faster
0: and there was always an acceptance, wasn't there? It seems to me they were talking about all this crazy stuff they built. There wasn't much judgment. It was all, hey, let's build cool stuff
1: yeah, exactly there there was just a well, I mean, if you you know even this the javascript based header parser was always sort of the Holy Grail for Node, because there was such a tax that was paid when you cross the JavaScript C boundary. That I was like, well, it actually can be slower in JavaScript, and it's still gonna be faster for Node's use case. So there's a lot of like pragmatism in uh JavaScript that isn't necessarily there in other languages because when you're being told to do, you know, make it do X, and it's like, well. The only way for it to do X is to use this very arcane thing called XML HTTP request. And then if I keep the socket open forever, even though that's never what it was intended to do, then I can get this thing that kind of feels like a persistent socket connection. You know, it's this like weird, yeah, I guess the best word for it, pragmatism that doesn't always exist in other languages because in other languages, there is sort of a right way to do things and that everything else is the quote unquote wrong way to do things and you get looked at sideways for doing it the wrong way. Whereas in JavaScript, you're like, well, you know, Ajax didn't really make any sense, but that was what worked. So we'll just do that. Is it another one of those? Maybe it is. Okay, let's try that. Yeah, let's just do it. (laughs) Let's just see what happens.
0: Yeah, because I started coding in Perl in the 90s. And that was, there's more than one way to do it. And then I ended up doing enterprise dev in Java. 10 years of my life gone. And it just felt so refreshing to come back to something like Node. Oh, in fact, years before Node, I had used Netscape's JavaScript server solution. I can't remember what they called oh, it. Man. Do you remember that? No, I didn't At I didn't a use backend that Backend in JavaScript. And this has gotta be oh 98 maybe?
1: I mean that that was the idea, right? And then it just you know the runtimes couldn't catch up to it. Um, but you know, I came into the JavaScript world probably like 2007 started like, you know, being around people doing it, Rhino, Narwhal, um, the early CommonJS debates, like before everyone thought that CommonJS was just modules, right? Like CommonJS was actually a whole other set of interfaces that was designed for interoperability between these, you know, proto JavaScript runtimes, Rhino, Narwhal, and then eventually Node. Um, this would been like the first six months of Node. Um, And over time, the thing that stuck around was modules because it was the one that was sort of the the most baked and there was the best and biggest need for it. Um, And it gave JavaScript the thing that in many ways it still has today, which is not just interoperability. Although there is sort of the, (sighs) I dreamed a dream of ESM and that dream has gone from me. Uh, we spent a lot of time on that dream uh, quietly at GoDaddy. Brad Farias, um, back then Brad Mack, um, was worked with us at GoDaddy, worked with us at Nipjitsu, And he did a lot of work on that, as did Miles Porins. And, you know, a lot of people put into it. But the the challenge there, I think when you look at some of the standard side of things, and I don't want to speak ill of anybody, but when you look at the staging process for TC39 that came out after ES6, stage... Three has to be in two browsers unflagged. That staging process came out right after ESM lands in the spec with no staging process. So, and the amount of other standards that needed to get written from the module loader spec to you know how are we going to do bare imports? All of those things were not TC39. There are what wig, their other standards group out there. And I'm not throwing any of those people under the bus. I'm sure those debates needed to happen, but This idea that this thing, this was been like 2016, 2017, that isn't implemented anywhere. Relitigating that portion of, and only that portion of the pac 262 spec will break JavaScript or break the internet is an absurd fallacy that I think everyone who is like frustrated with ESM needs to realize like there was a period where we could have fixed this if there was some flexibility there. And I appreciate the don't break the internet ethos of the you know, TC39 and the Echo 262 spec, but that one in particular, because it was shipped so early and really in many ways was the forcing function for the staging um, process that I think is a great staging process today. Um, we got what we got. <laughs> and j- JavaScript's having its uh, Python three moment. Uh, that- that's the way I I think-
0: know, I know. Oh my God, please stop. God save us, but in the early days you had all sorts of interesting things, like I O J O S. But then eventually it ended up. But in the end, it ended up under good stewardship. Was that just plain luck, or what lesson can we take from uh, large infrastructure-style projects?
1: Um, I think that. A vendor-neutral home for most large sort of foundational pieces of software is the right choice. Like when I heard that um, PyTorch had landed as a Linux Foundation collaborative project recently, I thought that was a great idea. And that was the result of a lot of hard work of building relationships with Meta, um, starting with, I think, in many ways, the GraphQL Foundation, uh, followed closely behind by the OpenJS Foundation, which became a home for uh, Jest and just showing that like there's a path there um and that vendor neutral is a safe place um for things that are foundational for their business and for many other people's business um the node story in the node fork, um Fyodor uh and Dudny was a nojitsu employee before he moved on to brighter pastures um i think about a year before he did the iogs for um and i think having someone like that who is just so apolitical being the person that forked it kind of sent the right message of like, look, this is about the contributors. It's always been about the contributors. The lead up to the fork was the result of, you just looked at the contributor numbers and they were going down for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't wanna, you know, rehash old wounds, anything like that, Um, but the, reason i think that made it so seamless was the one thing that javascript had going from from the very beginning which is that the semantics of the runtime prior to i think a couple of years ago when you started to have these what are the capabilities of the web and what capabilities of the web belong in the server-side runtimes in the browser runtimes etc but back then that that didn't really exist it was like look you have es5 and you have Couple of browser primitives, and if you don't, if you want a browser primitive, you have to do some kind of obtuse check for it, you know, type of HTML, XML, HTTP request equals undefined, that kind of stuff. Um, so the um, progressive enhancement version of the web, um, and that was progressive enhancement server programs too. Um, but back then, you could just say, hey, look, I'm going to go look at npm for something, and it's going to work. It's going to work in my program. Whereas if you look at something like Python. Ruby, really any other run. Yeah, party. yeah. You know, now Python has async IO, which is good, but there is still twisted. Um, and there's other projects that have async like capabilities. Um, I don't really know where Ruby landed on async IO back then. There was event machine and, um, was it Lib event, something like that. There was another, there was two different evented solutions for Ruby. And people that knew event machine really well could get performance similar to Node because they didn't have to deal with all of like the thread pooling that came from having to run like an Apache on top of it to do, you know, single-threaded I.O., blah, blah, blah. Um, and they would, you know, put up their samples and be like, hey, look, I made Ruby as fast as Node. It's like, yeah, but how many people can do that? Like you and ten other people, because you have to know, oh, King's that library, King's that library, King's that library, King's that library. I have to cherry pick these things out of the ecosystem well even and this is where you know there's some ignorance on my part of like where the pi pi boundary is and where say conda forge is, but um, my understanding is that not only is there multiple package managers, but there's also multiple published targets for packages. Um, So that if, just because you published something on PyPI doesn't mean that you published it to conda, doesn't mean that you published it to other places that, you know, Python packages may be pulled from. Um, And that in turn as I've gotten more um, invested in like MLOps, data ops, um, sort of growing from my, my early DevOps through building an early platform as a service with the clients that I work with, it's the best, you know, it kind of sounds crufty and like, you know, my beard's not that gray yet, but it's getting there, um, a little bit gray beard of me, but shipping packages in Python kind of feels like shipping packages to an operating system, like an operating system level package of, Oh, well, I have to ship ship the package five times. I need all this repackaging stuff. If you're going to truly ship a universal Python package, you would need to publish to all of those places. And so you end up with these sort of like interesting federated ecosystems. And because it's hard, people don't learn it. And so teams that I'm working with of like smart ML people, smart data science people, they don't really know the right way to set up a monorepo to publish through Python packages. And that was surprising to me because
0: it's very different to Node. So
1: different. And But it does make sense because it, it is, even with you know three different package manager clients, pnpm, yarn, npm, there's still one registry and there's still a very simple wire protocol for that registry, which in many ways was based on like one of the optimal ways to build it, which is on top of like it's still on top of Couch. And all for all of CouchDB's shortcomings, building a package manager on top of it is actually still a it's really, really good, it's it's a really good use, use case for it. And so I'm not trying to say like oh CouchDB is this perfect database, but it handles attachments and it handles documents up to several gigabytes. You really don't want them over like a gigabyte. That would be bad. Um, but you can do a lot with with a couple hundred megabytes and, like, simple attachments. And I know in order to scale NPM, I had to do all sorts of things that, you know, don't do that. You rip the attachments out of the main database and store them as, you know, URLs, et cetera. But it works pretty well. And so one of the things when I was talking a lot with Miles Borens about this in the days of ESM of, like, why isn't there a standards group for package management? For all, like, it doesn't exist. Yeah, let's just... It doesn't exist. Not like, oh, one for JavaScript and one for, like, really, why? We have containers. Why is there not a container equivalent for software packages? I I still, to this day, I don't know. The only answer that I can come up with is that it's taking a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds where the choices are going to lead to very different, like, pretty big branches in implementation detail and getting all those people in a room to care about each other's use cases is very hard. And so that's my hypothesis, why they they don't exist, is that it's just, it's a very diverse domain of problems and simplifying it down would require a lot of sort of, you know, you're in the land of like SimLink and hard SimLink. And what does that mean on Windows and Linux and, you know, BSD variants and, that world was very challenging and this is where when i talk about npm one of the things i i like to highlight is you know sort of as a pop quiz what is underneath the covers what is the best thing about npm but like what for like what does it do like what does it it downloads what what format does it download
0: they're local they're local to your project
1: but that but like it isaac in his you know mad science, crazy things we were doing back then. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a pure JavaScript TAR implementation. That's a crazy thing to do. And because it's pure JavaScript,
0: you don't have to deal
1: with these like cross operating system variants of like, oh, you need to install a TAR program on Windows. And oh, you have to like, you need this TAR program on Linux and you need this TAR program on Mac OS. It's like, oh, we have TAR balls. Okay, I'm going to write TAR in JavaScript. And then the package, the actual thing down to GZIP and the like tar GZIP, it's all native JavaScript or the C binding is built into the platform in the case of GZIP. So you don't need this like, you know, extra bit of install step. You install node, which comes with NPM, which has the tar implementation baked into it. And you're good to go. You don't need anything else. Whereas I think a lot of other packages, you know, they, they struggle
0: with that sort of formatting. It's so seamless. It's there right in front of me, and I don't even notice because it all just works. And it was a hard Fabulous. thing to do.
1: Writing, like, this was, I think, right around NPM 1.0. I was like, you know what? The fact that we're still relying on the operating system tar, and I was like, okay, I mean, that sounds pretty tough, but like, if that's where you think you need to go, you know, go for it. And I use it pretty frequently. It's, it's a really nice implementation. Works the browser in, like it just works.
0: Do you think Rust crates were inspired by Node? Oh, it I, mean, I like think it.
1: there's, um, Rust, the, you know, because that was all Yehuda. Um, so Yehuda is an interesting fellow because he had a, a stint in JavaScript. I think, I don't know if he's more Rust or more JavaScript these days, but I think he's, at the time, was better known for his Ruby work. And then he went and worked on Ember for a while. And as part of that was on tc39 so he was instrumental in some of that um finalization of the es module spec and then from there went to go work on uh rust and cargo and crates i don't know if he's still working on it but the early versions of cargo were were all yehuda um so that i think that he sort of got the full gamut because you know a lot of early node stuff is based on sort of that later Ruby stuff. Like in many ways, um, Connect and by proxy Express and all Express variants are just Sinatra. Um, Yeah, yeah. 100%. Which is a name that, you know, I'm sure nobody, because Sinatra merged, you know, with Merb, or maybe Sinatra's still around, but Merb merged with Rails and all sorts of. It's the old, the old library stuff that, you know, like the history of open source in many ways. Um, But it's it's where people get their ideas from. And if you, you know, that's why I, I like to. Call out this kind of thinking to people because I think in many ways a lot of people just get convinced that they're stupid or that their ideas. Going back to the wire engineer is not considered a creative trait of like they just get convinced that like oh well I had this idea you know blah blah oh this is how it works now it doesn't matter like how we made it no it's actually very important how we made it because how we get inspired those kinds of things um, and there's uh, an anecdote I guess I don't know if we're getting close to the end but it's a good closing anecdote um if we are close uh, you know what did for the 50 years before alan turing did his work you know what was every mathematician on the planet obsessed with you're familiar with this no, no. proving proving basic arithmetic a mathematical proof for basic right of
0: course, of course of
1: course right yeah no and you know until you freaking like really like wait oh really yeah like for 50 years every mathematician on the planet basic arithmetic and godel in his sort of trollishness was hey i have i found it i proved basic arithmetic everyone come to this conference and for you know those listening that don't know what i'm about to say he introduces something called godel's incompleteness theorem which is the idea that proving basic arithmetic is impossible you cannot prove it and one of the people sitting in the audience is alan turing and within 18 months it's like oh great i can stop wasting my time trying to prove basic arithmetic within 18 months he's like halfway there to prove like the church-turing thesis and the foundations of modern theoretical computer science but he he was convinced that he needed to be solving this problem <laughs> and so whenever i try to get engineers to you know really think big it's sort of like well what are the problems what should we be doing just get them all in a room and ask very simple questions what do you think we should be doing and right. you wait and, and it like, feels what do you like... Mean? like whatever i want whatever i think like yeah yeah like whatever you think and like well you know it's really hard to get a local dev environment set up like well maybe we should fix that you know and it ends up being dev tools almost always
0: so node was the moment for that era of coding but it feels like for machine learning we really need the same sort of moment right something that really captures the right way to do it and to capture that Thing about the node communities which was it was completely democratic I mean anybody could contribute that's what was so cool about it at any level of coding skill
1: there's um, there's a startup here in New York where I had the um, pleasure of running into from a, a VC that we knew and there was their 10 year anniversary a few weeks ago called Runhouse, have you seen this? it's just run run.house like that they have the I thought using the dot house GTLD was very clever. Um, but what they're trying to do is um, almost like functions as a serviceify some of these ML things, because in many ways of all the workloads that were out there, I like think back to the early node days, like I packages that I wrote that I, I have not thought about in a long time. One of them was called package cloud. It was a multi-cloud interface for node. And it turns out that that was not a great thing to build because most workloads don't have a very high marginal elasticity for where you can get savings. Like they're just, they're gonna, you run it on Amazon, you run it on Azure, you run it on GCP, it's a web app. It, it's gonna cost you pretty much the same amount of money. It's gonna run about the same. Like there's, there's not much difference. Data and like ML workloads are very sensitive to data access and have a lot of very bespoke data access problems and they are very sensitive to chip architectures. And, you know, it's going to do course. better on the Gen 4 chip. And, oh, it's finally kind of there um, for that. And I was, I was meeting with the founder. Um, we just had coffee a couple of weeks ago. And I was sort of saw this as it's a bit like framework defined infrastructure, you know, the Purcell buzzword, but for ML. And in ML case, you know, I'm not sure if I'm sold on it for the web case, because, again, those workloads are very easy to move around but in the case of ml they are very sensitive like hey you're running this on you know some sort of parallelism or, or you know this chip architecture gives you that thing or you know you have this version of those gpus and you can prove that it's 10 to 25 faster yeah like you should probably do that your training jobs go from you know five days to two days sure but this way it's packaged up by the Framework. You don't have to worry about this like obtuse layer of Python packaging that nobody really understands. It's a runhouse function, or it's a run. You know, so you know, I I haven't played with it that much, but I think that that's where we're probably going to start to see some innovation. Of so much of this problem space is just Python packaging, Um, and the funny part about it is that it's a lot of people that. Have never had to deal with package manager problems like we actually had sort of a brain trust of people you know because you have Yehuda come in who wrote ruby gems and did a ton of ruby gems work you have like isaac had done packaging work at yahoo um and like
0: it was just a critical we moment had people right who, who really just knew nexus, package managers
1: right? and there's not a lot of us like it's not a very <laughs> glamorous problem. And ML, you have a lot of very smart data scientists and ML engineers, but there's not a lot of like hardcore computer science operating pe- system people. Like that's that's a different set of people. Not one's better, or one's worse. They're just, they don't, you know, in the Venn diagram, there's very little overlap. And so if you don't know that your problem is way over here, because you're focused on your like domain problem, then you may not realize that actually this is something over there. Like, I'll give you a, uh, the highest And level it's actually example. like
0: dealing with uh, like a RAG, like a retrieval augmented generation system, right? And having worked with them, it's it's this issue of the kind of unpredictable performance.
1: Yeah, and I, I was coaching somebody like last week. Who knows? Like, look, here quantitatively, I can prove to you that your data access is going to be four times as fast at least... By switching from like time scale to a document database, because you don't actually have time. You have a monotonically increasing sequence number. And they're like, wait, yeah, a what a what? And I was like, look, you 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 just because they just saw a database, they saw time. They they're generating time series values. And so they thought, oh, time series, time scale, good database. You know, it's like, well, no, because you generate those values regularly. So you have multiple value. And so um, when they went and did the follow-up work on it, it turns out it's going to be at least six times faster, potentially 20 times faster. <laughs> so, and I'm not very good at databases. I'm like, okay at databases, you know, like I'm not Jake Chris Anderson. Like I'm I'm like, okay at this stuff um, in my mind anyway, but like in a room full of people who have never had to go and understand like, you know, what, an append only JSON store is, and the characteristics of, you know, partition keys, it's hard. It's, and this, you know, I don't like, not like an Amazon shill or anything, but this is why I always push people to Dynamo because every engineer yeah, that I've ever pushed to Dynamo, they come out, they know how databases work because Dynamo isn't really a database. It's like a, it's almost like level DB. It's a little, it's like, it's lower level. And i like, I ask people like, what, what's level DB? Do you know what that is? They're like, what's, what's that? They're like, well, if you're into databases, there's this like weird layer in the middle that isn't the database. It's like the hardcore data access layer that like isn't exactly the file system, but it's, you know, like what is level DB? Like it's a weird intermediary between stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that that's coming and I think it has to come because the funny thing about all of this and that I've heard of the ML problems is that entropy, if you had told me that what's gonna kill Moore's law Entropy, I'm like, what? Entropy? Turns out that's what it is. Because in order to get Moore's law to be accurate, you gotta stack it in three dimensions. And when you start stacking in three dimensions, the heat is so much that you actually have to run more energy through the chip. It's not linear, it goes up. So the data center cost for this next generation of computing and in, you know, by proxy, the climate impact of these data centers is gonna be more, not like same amount of work, but it's just gonna be more. So there is this, you know, and this is my current space for green tech, I'll kind of end here. I think there is a coming, at least I hope there is a, a sort of realization for many engineers out there, they're in the software field, that how you approach these problems matter because you may end up impacting the climate, but literally, and so I mean that's know, responsible computing is is, you know, it's not a very
0: uh, yeah, and we never order, had to worry about it before. Yeah, I mean maybe we were overclocking back in the day, but to actually have an impact on a much more fundamental level, right? Right. I am going to say thank you and good night. We have covered so much ground, I don't even know where to start to introduce this. And it is interesting that you've observed in the machine learning space that it just needs hard-working, down-to-earth engineers to make it really practical. We need to roll up our sleeves, right? What we're waiting for is someone to do what was done for Node, right? In, in many ways, yeah, basic like
1: taking the computer scientists and having them, you know, I I, don't, I some of these tongue-in-cheek, you know, descriptions that I have certainly can be viewed as um, talking down to very smart ML folks, very smart data scientists, so know things that I'll never know, you know, but the data scientists and computer scientists, not the same thing. And that's not a bad thing, right? But it's that, like, data scientists solving a lot of these hard ML problems with ML engineers, et cetera. But this like ML ops space that is there. It is um, reminds me a lot of DevOps like 10, 12 years ago. No one really knows what it is. It's a little bit all over the place. And turns out a lot of what DevOps ended up being is like, um, you're using MySQL. Why are you using MySQL? That's bad. You know, like just real basic computing problems because when you're being forced to maintain the system, you go like, this can't possibly be the right way to do this. This seems really wrong. And then you go talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, you should like switch over to Postgres. Postgres will make that a lot easier for you. And then now, you know, 10 years later, most people are on Postgres. Obviously, an oversimplification of some of the domains, but I think it's a lot of that of like people are like, well, I'll just use this, you know, SQL for everything. It's like, well, yeah, I mean SQL for like at least 50% of things, maybe 70, but like there's a 30% data problem. Like, that's why we use Cassandra and you know all these other alternative databases. They're not universal, but if your workload looks like this. You should probably use that.
0: Okay, okay. I eagerly await the solution. I eagerly await the solution. It is a, it is a bit of a quagmire. Lots of fun, but. Charlie, thank you so much. This has thank been you. such such a great to catch up. Scary, but fascinating. Thank you so much. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye.
1: Take care. Yeah, good catching up.
0: Bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast. And any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com/podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com/newsletter or follow our Twitter at @voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.